it's so rare that a new team comes into F1. Having said that, though, Audi are not the supermarket. <laughs> Audi and Lidl <laughs> up against each other on, on the track. The budget car. It's <laughs> amazing. Yeah, just potatoes as wheels. <laughs> <laughs> So Formula One, F1, where has it come from? Because I was watching it recently and thinking it's become so popular now. That is actually a, that's a big trend that people have noticed recently. It's interesting because I don't know if it's a bit biased that I've been so enthusiastic about it. In my close group of friends, I've just really pushed for that. I've been completely obsessed with it and I've really pushed out people. And even friends who don't like F1 mm. have now started taking the interest <laughs> because I've been so forceful. Which works. Which works because you weren't a fan of it, would you say? You didn't even know who won the championship until a week ago. And Which that, should be the, pretty big yeah, in the Yeah, I mean, that's the 2021 championship, not even the 22 one. So you've been a bit out of the loop. But suddenly your interest has peaked. And I think maybe it's just... Because it, sometimes it needs like an enthusiasm from someone to get you more interested in the sport. But, I, yeah, hopefully I push that enough to excite people. Someone like Toby, who's completely car-free, he enjoys it a bit now. Um, Abby Lee's getting a shout-out. She, <laughs> she was all against F1, but now really enjoys it. Yeah. I'd say maybe not really, but... I don't know what it is, though, because, obviously, the main sport I like is football, and I do really mm. like watching tennis. And then you've got this sport that... I think it's how I looked at it when I was growing up. I, you know, I think it was on Channel 5 or Channel 4... And I never enjoyed it. And mm. then my friends, about three years ago, my my group chat really started to get into it. And again, didn't spark my interest. The last two to three months, I'd say it's a culmination of playing the game, mm. having having the race on in the background and, you know, seeing you watch it. And then also just following the drivers a bit more and maybe caring about the teams. So th- those three culminated. I know if I add a fourth of Drive to Survive... That will kind of complete Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head there. I think the sport tends to have trends of interest. When a team, like this goes for any sport, but when a team or a person is winning all the time, the sport naturally gets boring. So you have, you've had two waves of the sport. You've had the Schumacher era where he won seven world titles, five back to back. You've had the Hamilton era where he's also won seven. That's 14 years where you've had the same, per- you've had two people win. That's naturally going to get a bit boring. But the sport has done very well recently to make the sport interesting. The, uh, you know, the stewards in the background and the uh, the management behind it. And that, that comes through new regulations and new upgrades to the car. You've got these new young and exciting talents coming through that are trying to, you know, topple the old dogs. You've got Verstappen and Leclerc coming through. And this year, this, this championship, I was thinking about this earlier, albeit the title fight is over, which is what gets people excited the racing this year that will still continue for the rest of the season has been the best ever. It's been the best racing across the board you'll ever see. And most people get excited by obviously who wins. Yeah, that's fair. But if you watch across the board, the racing has been absolutely phenomenal. You get cars going four four into one. Um, at Silverstone this year, you get sort of three into one overtakes. It's brilliant. Let's go back a bit to kind of set it up for this year's racing. And... This might be quite difficult, but try and kind of have it in a graph almost mm. of where where do you think, maybe even your personal experience as well, but where was F1 20 years ago and what's been the trajectory of it? Because I imagine technology and different things in the media and popular culture like Drive to Survive or Hamilton being a British driver. Mm. So can you think back in terms of like 20, 30 years ago? I mean, what was the earliest races that you've, you've watched? Yeah, it's a good point. I- I don't have the strongest memory, for, obviously, from 20 years ago, and I don't really have the strongest recollection of what happened, I, only from, you know, watching old races. But... Do you watch the high, Do you watch highlights of old races, ever? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's hard. The further back you go, the less consistent the highlights reel is. It, it, sometimes it's only down to select moments. But from what I grasped, you, you, a lot of what prevails now happened 20 30 years ago absolutely as you said it's completely different technology and you get it's a different type of viewer it would be you know a lot of the same i feel like back in the day and i might be uh, just speaking from my own perception someone who's been watching f1 for 20 years would understand this better but it looks like 
back in the day it would be a lot of the same people watching each each race whereas now you get a lot more people who have a slight interest really concentrating on f1 and you can see that trend because the attendances of all the races are in, increasing tenfold like silverstone this year had over four hundred thousand people come and each year the attendance gets higher and higher so i think the best way to resemble that growing interest is by the attendance and also maybe just word of mouth do you find yourself a lot more people are talking about f1 um, and people didn't even expect to talk about it yeah that's a good point um, again I always go back to that Drive to Survive documentary but there's people in my group over the last few years who I didn't think would have much of an interest to have mm. and really speaking about it in detail you know it seems to be something that and I'm beginning to understand why but it seems to be something that you start to enjoy and then all of a sudden you're hooked and you're able to talk about the companies the, the cars sorry mm. the, the, the makes the drivers in detail and all the little because you just as you start to watch it you, you uh, to begin with you just think right they're racing <laughs> they're racing around a track on the tin yeah brilliant okay fantastic but then <laughs> then I think you kind of showed me the the speedometer and I need to go and see a live race to to really appreciate this but the, the rate at which they're going does not is not shown well on TV yeah and when you get there I'm sure that you just see them whizzing past or you see that clock in at about 140 miles an hour and maybe then I'll start to really think wow that is absolutely incredible and then as you I think maybe as you become to see if you play goals for example and then you watch football and you you Mm. think how have they done that the more you sit back and understand how difficult it is maybe the more you appreciate and enjoy the sport as well yeah absolutely that's interesting you say because I always find that it looks really quite quick on telly I think the camera angles do a good job Mm. Um, but as you said, if you go and watch it, watching sport in real life is completely different to on telly. But I think F1 do a really good job at commentating and presenting the the race. But you go and watch a live race, and it's uh, it's, it's next level. We'll, we'll talk about your your Silverstone experience soon because that's really key. <laughs> I think uh, let's just try and go back to let's talk about Hamilton a bit because mm. I think that's maybe where. Things changed a lot for the sport, particularly in the UK. So, who is Hamilton? Like, what's his background? And like, do you know? That's quite, quite a big question. <laughs> what is Why do we get him on? <laughs> <laughs> he declined. Um, I was our second. Yeah, second in line. Unfortunately, right. yeah. <laughs> Lewis Dawson. Um, so, <laughs> makes no sense. So, who is he? And and kind of what? What was his success like? Because you mentioned he did seven. Mm. over his career and he's still racing still obviously racing. so like what was that period like for F1 well I, I'm a huge huge fan of Hamilton it's interesting I just, I've got a quick point about that I don't know who I follow it's in like most people in sport have a favourite person or team I'm not sure who I follow I'm as cringe as this is about to sound a fan of the sport boo <laughs> <laughs> I just I find it hard to I, I, I side with the excitement the sport gives me and like that feeling that nothing else ever actually gets me that worked up. Okay. Um, so Hamilton, he, he's got a, an interesting upbringing. So his dad worked three jobs in Stevenage to pay for his and fund Hamilton's karting experience growing up. So from a very young age, I think it was probably around four years old, he was competing in go-karting. Um, why, do you, why do you think... Is his dad had a huge interest in go-karting then? Well, his dad would have had an interest in the sport and perhaps could have just seen something. Maybe he's trying, maybe he was wanting Hamilton to live what, you know, Andy, his dad, or Anthony, sorry, couldn't um, couldn't do. Mm. I feel like it's the same with Verstappen's dad. He was an F1 driver, but never really made it big. So now he's sort of, I wouldn't say like living his life through his son, but it certainly helps because you have that mentor from day one. Um, but Hamilton was straight away on the the world scene he was fast-tracked through f3 and f2 which are the sort of championship and league one of the f1 world um and he became he finished one point in second place in his rookie season which how, is how old was he then good question he must have been 18 17 wow he would have been, he would have been between like 17 and 19 and so he imagine if um somebody's never been in f1 car before because comes into a new season and he's one point off the title. 
And uh, this is going to be a bit of a confusion question now because we mm. get into a weird territory where I am so confused by... It, it's an unusual sport in which the drive make a difference. And what I mean by that is if you stick the clerk in a different maker car and model, it'd be interesting to see how he fares and vice versa with mm. Hamilton. So when Hamilton is obviously succeeding as he is in that first season it's hard to say how much is that him or how much mm. is it the car but I guess how, like what I'm trying to ask is how do you stipulate how much of it is the driver compared with the car mm. I guess it's a couple of things you know you you earn your place to be in that car if you're good in a if you're outperforming a bad car you're going to excel in a good car and also Hamilton's teammate in his first year was two time world champion Fernando Alonso and he finished above him so the rookie finishes above the veteran. In the same team. In the same team, in the same car. And I remember going back to like Hamilton's upbringing, his dad would always say and encourage um, Lewis to break as late as possible. Even if you're going to spin, you've got to keep, you've got to break as late as possible and as hard as possible. And that's the technique. Wow. It's interesting in karting because it's a completely different type of racing. You go, you go deeper to maintain the straight line speed to then come out the corner and go-karts don't accelerate as quick as cars obviously and they don't have as high speeds but the the technique is completely different but if you learn in a dodgy go-kart at 10 years old you're going to be able to do it in a completely specialised model of an F1 car sort of 10 years later Um, but I think you get F1 drivers will sort of obtain that instinct from a very early age and then refine it over a 15-year career okay and then so you've got him coming in at an early age absolutely smashing it and then his dominance is partly well mostly due to him by the sounds of it being a fantastic driver and then i think the the team was he was he with one team or did he split teams so he was with mclaren when he first came in for about five years i believe and then got the nod to go to mercedes because they were investing big in the new hybrid era technology where they moved away from full petrol cars it's now like a hybrid engine um and now we're in a completely new era so this season just gone is it a complete it's a clean slate of f1 technology um so it's interesting now to see who's going to dominate for the next uh era so it could be for the next seven years i it, I think it could be a bit of a risk that maybe Red Bull could go back into a bit of a, a dominant era. I'm not of that assumption. I think Mercedes will hate the fact that Red Bull are winning all the races. And I think Ferrari will, will come into the limelight as well if they rejig their team. Like it's as much as a it's as much as a team sport it is a driver sport. Because the clerk is world championship material. He just doesn't have the team behind him to win that. It's like trying to if it's like if Man City tried to they've got all their players but not Pep. Do you think they could do it? Probably not. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing what one one little cog, well, not that a manager in football is little, but can make a difference. Well, an F1 team is actually the complete opposite. You have the driver and a thousand people working underneath you. And it, it's not in that hierarchy. Everyone, they, they really stress about like how it's sort of, it is a flat hierarchy, but the driver is the one who's on the telly. But the engineers, they don't want to be on the car. They want to be fixing it. So... I mean, if I if I if I was good at science or physics or maths or whatever, I'd I'd like to be an F1 engineer. I wouldn't even care about the fact that I'm not driving it, mm. but I just want to be working on a car that work that wins championships or races. So, is there often a debate or, or a talk going on in the sport about what percentage? I don't know why I'm so interested in this, but like a, what, what how it weighs out in percentages in terms of how important the team is to the overall mm. performance and possible victory of a car and a team. Yeah, I'm not really sure about the what percentage it it adds up to. Like, you you can't have one without the other unless it's just a fluke, I'd say, because sometimes a team radio cuts out in a race and the race the racer can just go and do it themselves. But then you won't know when to pit or when the gap behind you is. So I'd say it's probably still like eighty twenty as a rough estimate. Eighty percent being the driver because they're the one who did, they're the you know. They're the one who are, who are out there winning the race. But ultimately, it is a team sport. 
And what? So let's talk about the quick note on the teams then. So mm. we've got you mentioned Ferrari, McLaren, and Red Bull. Yeah, are these the top three teams that have been dominating for Mercedes as well? McLaren, have, McLaren are one of the most successful teams in the world, but that's more historic. They're pretty good now, and they are on the up. But at the moment, in modern era, I'd still say Mercedes are the top team, and Red Bull certainly. Are coming up, uh, coming up the ranks. They're a drinks manufacturer, and they were interested in investing in a extreme sports. You know, they they promote stuff like um, what is it? The Red Bull Racing, um, the planes that fly. Do you know what I mean? They like fly under bridges and stuff, or they do like Red Bull cliff diving. Oh, They're wow. just interested in um, extreme sports and fancied getting involved with Formula One. So they outsource for their engine and their components. So they don't build their engine like Mercedes or Ferrari. They get theirs from Honda. Um, and they've just kind of... They're taking the championships that should be from the traditional car manufacturers, which is quite funny. And that's why it does get quite beefy. There's a lot of politics involved with the teams because previously, in 2017, Red Bull were buying their engines from Renault. And Renault were probably... They knew, Renault knew at the team that they had less of a budget and they were lower down the rankings than Red Bull. But there was a bit of beef between the the team principals because the Re, the Renault team principal was thinking, why why are we supplying the Red Bull manufacturer with an engine that we're losing to? And then when the Red Bull when the Renault engine wasn't working for um, Red Bull. It was breaking down a lot. They, you know, the team principal Red Bull come back and say, "Well, we're we're giving you 150 million quid to break down. What are you doing? Not turmoil." So it's really interesting the sort of background politics behind it as well. That's the stuff that is quite difficult to look at on the surface, and I, I think that's why I quite like the sport because you mentioned it earlier about someone can who's never seen a race before can watch what's happening and ostensibly it's cars go around a track and the fastest person wins. But you could look so much more into it, so much like into the absolute minutiae of the sport, and that could come down to the relations between team, team principals who were supplying components across the the board, um, and then within that you can look at the intricacies of the drivers and how good they are at different tracks. Um, the different cars are suited to different circuits, which is also an, a whole kettle of fish. So the Ferrari has it. They're very good in what's called mid-speed corners, um, but they don't have very good straight line speed. So over a one-shot lap, which is qualifying, the Ferrari is always quickest because they have that cornering speed. Whereas a Red Bull over a 60-lap race, if you've got that straight line speed, you can slowly, slowly chop away your opponent and the Ferrari can't handle it. So there's different tactics there. And that's why you see, you look at the pole positions, the clerks won, I think... Off the top of my head, I'm not sure, but he's he's won an insane amount of pole positions. But if you look at his conversion rate from pole position to wins, it's like it's very minimal. It's like 15%. Whereas you look at Hamilton's or Verstappen's, the way he converts a pole position into a win when he gets it is way higher. Okay. Yeah, it's really interesting that you talk about the different attributes that the cars have. Mm. So could you give us an example... Because even, again, coming into the sport new, there's different tyres, right? So yeah. that's one thing. There's dry, wet tyres. So that's <laughs> that's that's weird for me to, to consider. I mean, to be fair, cars um, out in the road do have winter tyres. Some of yeah. them, you know, some people look after their cars. But So that's an example. But can you think of real intricate things that, that might not seem to make a bit of a difference, but they could make that second difference that is so key? Yeah, I... Well, the, you you hit the nail on the head there with the tyres because that is... I really like how the entire sport revolves around tyres. You have the car, but without the tactics and the strategy behind tyre usage, you will get absolutely nowhere. And it goes down to how good a driver is at managing the tyres. So you could be quick over three laps on a new set of tyres, but then once you get that tread worn away, it's going to be so slick on the surface that you won't be able to maintain the pace. Whereas a good, someone who's really fantastic at managing their tyres, usually the more experienced racers. So Sergio Perez um, for Red Bull, he is an absolute expert at monitoring the tyres. So he can consistently not be the quickest, but over, it's the, it's that, um, it, 
it's consistently good over an entire race rather than being amazingly quick for three laps and then burning out. So, yeah, the tyres tie are very... I think that's the most obvious thing for the tiny... the subtle differences in speed. Um, I can't believe then, they're that important. <clears throat> like, what... I mean, it's really hard to go into the science of, of that, but why are they so key? Like, if you didn't change tyres for... Let's say, for example, it was dry... Hmm. And you didn't change to wet tyres when it started raining or if it's the surface is wet. I mean, how bad could that be for you? It, it's race ending. It's crash worthy straight away. If Let's say you're halfway around a track and it starts raining relatively heavily so that water is visible on the surface. Unless you, like most cars will probably go straight off at the next corner and just straight into a barrier. It's, the amount of grip is all based on how hot the tyres are. So you want that's why you see cars weaving at the beginning of a race or weaving behind a safety car, because the build-up in the friction creates grip in the tyres. So as soon as the tyres lose that temperature because of the rain, obviously rain cools the t- surface of the track, you don't have that, um, that traction and you go straight off. I thought, sorry, I thought that was absolutely hilarious. The first time I saw that, I was thinking, what are they doing? They look like right Muppets. <laughs> but it's a smart move it's, from them. It's quite interesting, yeah, it, it's weird watching a car swerve because you don't see it in real life. No. And you see it on telly and you think, what on earth are they doing? But it makes sense because you, you're you adding friction into the camber of the tyre. I mean, a good example of... In fact, the most recent and best example of tyre usage making a gain is the final race of, this, of the 2021 season in Abu Dhabi where Hamilton was on tyres that are about 30, 40 laps old. They were also of a... Um, uh, a slower standard but because there, so there was a safety car Hamilton stayed out on slower tyres Verstappen pitted for fresh quick tyres because he needed he needed to just like change the strategy make a bold move and he ended up winning the race because he changed onto tyres that were newer and grippier than Hamilton's and that he won an entire championship off that one call that was also made by the team so you can see how it all comes together but it's interesting because if Hamilton had if Hamilton had pitted, because someone might say, well, why didn't Hamilton pit for tyres? Verstappen would have stayed out on tyres that weren't as old and maintained that position. So he would have been in first and Hamilton would have been behind. Okay. It's interesting how it works. But, I mean, maybe if that had, in that scenario, if Hamilton had pitted and Verstappen stayed out, Hamilton would have been able to overtake. Because otherwise my logic doesn't work. But... That's the risk that Red Bull made in that in that moment, and then in a parallel universe, maybe it's the reverse. But in that moment, they made that call to change tyres to win the championship, and that one call worked. And now they're on course to dominate. So yeah, and it just shows judgment. you, as you said, it just shows you the the reliance of the team there. Absolutely, yeah. So <clears throat> pitting. So obviously the race. There's there's a couple of things to talk about in terms of getting getting my head and maybe <laughs> someone's head around the race aspect. Um, actually, first before we do that qualification mm. you know we we <clears throat> playing the game a lot and the idea that you have to qualify for the race um so how does that work let's pick a the first grand prix of the season mm. right so this is f1 first grand prix of the season mm. <clears throat> how does qualification work because do teams have their certain amount of do they have two drivers in each do, does a team get uh, allowance of two drivers so there are three rounds to qualifying this is the most logical way to deduct who's going to be on pole you have three rounds the first round everyone is involved but the bottom uh the bottom six people are removed from qualifying so if you're in the bottom six and you're slow you're out then the next round is the uh the bot another of the chunk it's another five that are taken off so now there's only 10 people going into the final round. And then the, the final round, called Q3, is a, is a one shot to see who gets on pole. So you have to earn the right to be in the final stage to win qualify, uh, to win or get on pole. Before this all happens, before the season <coughs> starts, how does F1... How do, what, what's the governing body called? The FIA. FIA. How, how do they decide the 20 drivers... That are going to be responsible for. It's like the Premier League, isn't it? Twenty teams they play out the season. So how do they decide these twenty drivers that play out the season? 
Well, that comes down to the team. So it's the team choose who they want as their driver. And it's very similar to football about securing contracts for drivers. Maybe someone's out of a seat that already is in F1. You want them. So for, go on. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's just it's hard to get my head around this. But drivers, <laughs> are you suggesting that teams have their allotted spaces every season? They've only got two. Two. But how does a team even... Like, if you're a new team, how how would you try and get... And does every team have two? So there's ten teams, two spaces. So there's twenty. There's only twenty every single year. What about if you're a if you're a new team or if you're a team that wanted a third space? Are those two things Absolutely. not possible. Third driver is completely impossible, but has been spoken about. New teams is very rare because it's so expensive to buy into the sport. A lot of the time, it's with the lesser teams who are more. They flux more. They sometimes they're rebranded. They're bought by new owners. So, for example, Renault, who I mentioned earlier, uh, are now called Alpine. So it's the same manufacturer, rebranded. It's so rare that a new team comes into F1. Having said that, though, Audi are not the supermarket. (laughs) Audi and Lidl (laughs) up against each other on on the track. The budget car. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, just potatoes as wheels. (laughs) (laughs) Audi, the car are coming in 2026 as a new manufacturer. And Porsche were going to, but have now opted out. And this is an example... I mean, in modern era, I can't think of an example where a new team is coming in. When did Red Bull come into things? I like that... Early 2000s? Yeah, yeah, I think it might have even been... I I actually don't know. That's a really good question. I'm trying to think. Yeah, it would be like mid-2000s. They've got two teams. They've got a sister team called Toro Rosso. Well... Historically called Toro Rosso, now called AlphaTauri. Okay. Um, and they're quite they're they're an interesting team because Red Bull technically have four drivers. So I go back on that question where I said you could have three, because Red Bull technically have Red Bull team and then AlphaTauri. And the drivers, very back in the sort of um, maybe about five years ago, these drivers were swapping every every half a year, because Red Bull were hastily trying to refine a driver who could complement Max Verstappen. He was, he is, he will be, and is the only consistent Red Bull driver. They've secured him for another eight years. He'll probably only ever race with Red Bull. And but he's they, happy with that. He's happy with that. Well, he's gonna. He's in a championship winning car year in, year out. He's more than happy with that. And he's in a good relationship with everyone. Um, but the thing is, you need a teammate to accommodate Verstappen, and they, Red Bull couldn't find that partnership. It's like if you brought in... I keep using parables for football. But it's like <laughs> if you brought in two... If you had Messi and Ronaldo in the same team, then they're, they're not going to work. They're going to fight over who gets the goals. But then if you bring in, like... Fred. Fred. Fred up front. <laughs> well, if you bring... Yeah, if you bring in Fred up front... He's going to do be a able, job. He's not gonna be able, well, he will do a job, but he's not going to be able to assist with... Ronaldo, they're not going to work very well together in a sort of... Oh, so you need someone better than Fred, worse than Messi? Yeah. Cool. You need someone who's compliant. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? And Perez. Sergio Perez. So Perez comes in, yeah. who's an experienced, diligent racer. He's amazing at managing his tyres. He can win races and challenge Verstappen in certain pole positions. But I think it's... And someone might say that's unfair. But Perez knows that this is one of the most competitive sports. It's one of the most brutal sports because you can be chucked out of a seat in a flash. He knows that he has to race as hard as he can to get... He needs to if he wants to win a world championship, he has to prove it, and he knows it. So you mentioned that there. So obviously you've got the you've got the drivers for the teams. Um, how often? Obviously, sounds like Hamilton, mm. Verstappen, Fernando Alonso. These are drivers that obviously clearly have had no worry about their seats. Mm. They're fantastic drivers. Do we see in in the champion? Let's bring it back to football again. In the championship <laughs> this season, I read somewhere that there's been a record number of sackings. I think so far this season in the championship mm. it's very cutthroat particularly with managers players not so much you don't often see players leave in fact you rarely do see players leave mm. mid-season it's a bit cutthroat when it comes to um, January or summer transfer window but what I'm trying to get at here is we've got the drivers is it possible for them to be is it quite cutthroat and is it possible for them to, to leave or be fired mid-season yeah I'd say well it's interesting. I wouldn't say a driver will be fired halfway through a season. They certainly will be cut at the end of the season. But with Red Bull, 
going back to this, because they had four drivers, if a it, quite often, so this happened with Daniel Kvyat, who was in the Red Bull top team. It happened with Pierre Gasly, and it happened with Alex Albon. So these are drivers who came up from the the lesser sister team Red Bull into the big seat to prove themselves, and they had a, a year, maybe even less sometimes, and they were cut because they weren't good enough. And that's the brutal side of things. But the drivers know that they know that they have one year to prove it, and which is fortune, which is enough. I'd say think. that's enough. Yeah. The like, Red Bull is not here to mess about. Like other teams, if Mercedes had four seats because they had a, a, a B team, they'd rotate. They, it's just, it's just, you get it in sport, in football, you get squad rotation. You give a player six weeks to prove himself. If they don't, then that's just the nature of the game. Um, but a racer usually gets two years to prove himself which in a sport where there's only 20 positions available, it's not like football where it's endless, or golf, or cricket, because I'm going to bring in other sports now. <laughs> you have 20 places. It's a, it is a, far, it's a, a, it's a capped group of people. And most racers, I can't think of anyone recently who's had less than two years to prove himself, which is ample. Yeah, you're right. I, I think that, you know, I don't want to be too harsh on F1 drivers, but it sounds like, <clears throat> in comparison, I, I think of something like football where a player comes in to a team in a Premier League game, it's their debut. If they don't perform well, there's a chance you're not seeing them again for a long time. And they can perform well in training, but when it comes to that one game, you know, you put in a performance. I remember someone like Lamptey mm. for, for Chelsea and Brighton, where early doors he put on great performances. Funny enough, he left Chelsea, I don't know why, but, you, you know, it's a big, big first game few games and I suppose they've been working up to that mm. moment where they get to the F1 seat so obviously they're very competent drivers but it's good to hear that they get such a extended time so if you do yeah. make one mistake in a race you know you've got the rest of the season yeah. but you, the the engine it's the engineer's job and the mentor each race has their own mentor and support team to analyze how they can be better and sometimes they get it and they click and I'm talking about rookies more they, they it clicks with them and you know, give it a few years and they're absolutely amazing. But I think you can quite quickly see who is going to be the next generational superstar. And with Verstappen, he came in at... He drove an F1 car when he was uh, 15. He won his first race when he was 17. He didn't even have a driving licence. You can see straight away this kid is next level. And it's the same with Hammond. And it was the same with Alonso. These kids, they, they, they are kids. They're... 17, 18, 19, and they come in and they they outperform a car that a master at the wheel has been used has been at for ten years. So that's when you can see it's the same with young talent in football. You get an amazing eighteen year old, you get a Bellingham or a Saka, and, <laughs> and you can just tell that they're gonna. <laughs> oh no, Arsenal fan over here. Hey, hey. the good goodness. <laughs> so. It sounds like it's a, you know, young, young guys do really well in the sport. Do you find that there's, or is there a age limit? You know, is there a certain amount of time? Uh, is there a certain age you get to mm. where you can't perform that well? Because it is driving, so I'd assume that maybe a forty-year-old can can perform just as well. But then at the same time, you've said to me before, it's quite a physical, physically challenging sport. Yeah. Well, from a young age. You do F1 drive. They wouldn't just the first time you're in an F1 car wouldn't be in a race. You'll do pre-season testing, and if you've got to a position where you can drive an F1 car, you've proved yourself in previous ranks, and you've been driving competitively for ten years. This when I was saying earlier about F1 drivers' careers start when they're four. They're they're literally putting go karts. Maybe even when they're two, start racing at four. So you get you you build up the muscles and the knowledge of the track and the car and the synergy between those three things. Do I mean that's that shows to me then that drivers who maybe start late are we only seeing drivers in the top F one that have been two three four years old and, and their parents have have driven them to it pun the pun. <laughs> I'm not too sure about the entire grid lineups background. Quite often you <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I didn't yeah, expect you to be. Well, quite often you do get people from a young age driving. I I know just from like. Anecdotally, Hamilton and Verstappen. There's photos and videos and chats of them saying that they've been they started when they were four. But I mean, 
I guess if you're a, a late starter and you're really good, it doesn't even matter. I mean, there's in recent news actually, there's an esports racer who was basically just he was a uh, a fanatic of the sport and he used to race in a simulator in his room and he managed to get a a contract with Porsche Racing in the championship and now he races in I think it's F3 and he was just he just enjoyed the sport like we do when we go on a PlayStation and <laughs> so he's a late starter but yeah as an example of how he's proved himself worthy of racing and he's hopped in an actual car not just a and you know simulator and he's proving his worth I'm being a little harsh there because I think of a lot of other things whether that's being a musician actor or sport mm. you, you start from young you know you you, you get the luck of the draw because your parents do you know not force you to do it but encourage you to do it so I'm I'm being harsh on the on the mm. sport in that sense that you know as expected if you start young you're going to be particularly proficient when you get to teenage years having said that though uh, I my dream job is to be an F1 driver, but I think I'm a bit late. Like, I know 24 might be a bit late, <laughs> but that's why I'm trying to. I'm trying to. My way into the sport is through gaming. Through gaming, which and isn't going to happen. Of, bit of self promotion here. You got a chance on the on the podcast. Yeah, vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to. There's a few other things I wanted to touch on. Mm. Uh, just to go back to that race atmosphere, um, yes. we've we've spoken about being on pole or getting yourself in that grid position why is a grid position so important fundamentally the further you start up the grid the less you have to overtake to win but it's a lot more complex than that i'm actually of the assumption i know this might seem a bit controversial but i don't think being on pole actually matters that much i don't think it it matters massively i mean i wonder what the it's hard to look at the statistics because you think, oh, let's have a look and see the amount of times the person on pole has won it. But at the same time, the person on pole is the person who's come first in qualifying. So they're obviously going to be favourites Abs- anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's in, yeah, that's such a good point. It's a, it's a mindset thing as well. Oh, I'm on pole. I know I can beat everyone else. Yeah. But as I said, there's so many complexities to being on pole. Uh, the amount of times that last year Verstappen and Hamilton battled and quite often it'll be like Verstappen on pole but then he doesn't get as good a getaway because the Red Bull tends to anti-stall a lot more than the Mercedes the Mercedes off the line is naturally a better car accelerating so so often Verstappen works his arse off to get pole and then he's he's second place into turn one and then he has to work for 60 laps I keep using an F1 race isn't 60 laps I just use it as like a an estimate do they but do the different tracks so um, you've got a season Let's talk about the season quickly. You've got the season, and it runs from... Around March to November, late December, late November slash early December. Lovely stuff. So a lot of the racing you'll, you'll watch through the summer, which is nice. Mm. The structure format tends to be you've got your qualifiers the day before, and yep. the race, which is usually, luckily, UK time, it's usually in the afternoon. Mm. And so how many tracks are there, do you know, or how many countries get involved with this it changes every year with the amount of tracks this this season just gone there are 22 i believe next season is the longest ever race calendar with 24 tracks is that because countries and like track owners have have said put forward their track and this this reverts back to our very first point about where this trends come from there's so much more interest and money in the sport the countries now and maybe even cities can't they can't ignore it anymore so a good example of this is um f1 as a franchise have been pushing for a las vegas f1 track for about 40 years and every single year the um the stakeholder the key stakeholders are obviously the mg grand and all the big hotels and they say we can't shut down five days of our in our prime in a prime year of making money from casinos we can't shut the uh you know the the casino fronts we can't shut off for an f1 traveling circus we can't do it and as of this year they've announced that there's going to be an f1 race in but las they vegas got a track, have they? so what they're doing they convert the street into a what's called a street track so they're literally shutting the entire city for an f1 race there and the cars are racing outside the front of the mg grand it's going to be 
unbelievable. I, I, this race is going to be like one of the biggest sporting events of the entire year. If you could, would you try and get to it? Well, I, I, absolutely. I, I've been talking to a couple of friends about going. It might be a bit of a pipe dream. I don't think I can splash out. Oh, the money's going to be ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, but that would be incredible experience. Um, but th- this goes back to my point about the race calendar is expanding because cities and countries now can't they can't live without that extra bonus of finance and they want it it's good for the it's good for the culture and the community of the sport um but it's not that does not say it's 24 different countries so america next year having three races because of it's actually you alluded to it earlier but it's the drive to survive influence they they previously only ever had one track and they weren't too fussed um a lot of people disregarded f1 in america because it wasn't physical enough um, because NASCAR is the sort of symbol of American racing. Now all of a sudden they've built a Miami track and they're building a Las Vegas track and everyone loves it. Um, it strikes <clears throat> me, it's funny that you mention America because we've spoken about the car manufacturers, 10 of them, and we've spoken about the drivers. They all strike me as very it's very European. Hmm. Um, obviously, part of me thinks, well... F1 is an expensive sport. It's not like some other sports. You know, if you're going to practice, if you're going to be, it's particularly when you're younger and and be proficient at it, you're probably going to need to have access to things like go-karting, for example, which, again, I, I imagine it's quite European or possibly in America, possibly in more developed places. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the drivers, you're probably going to see a lot of European and maybe mm. that's just the culture. Um, but, yeah, can, I mean, what's your take on that? Yeah. Why is it European and why are the car manufacturers European and but the racetracks aren't that's yeah very good point that, that this is a very key part of F1 because it's it's a rich person sport and I think it's important to address that um, and yeah you you mentioned it earlier the racing is centralised in Europe I guess how like a lot of other sports are centralised in Europe um, good point yeah it's just where the viewing is and where the money is. Um, but then, obviously, you do get centralised hotspots of racing, so it's quite, yeah, as I said, big in America. Um, Abu Dhabi is a race. Is it popular there, or is it just because that's kind of a rich country? That I'd is? say that's... The uh, Middle East is... They're really investing in sporting events recently. Obviously, they want to... I mean, they're hosting the World Cup. Mm. Um, but traditionally, they're not, like, motor racing sports, but they could be in the future um, yeah the money's quite a key thing a, a lot of the races do come from quite wealthy backgrounds which I, yeah is quite a lot of people admit to that you do get some of the sort of um, rags to riches stories like Hamilton grew up in Stevenage and his dad and mum um, who have now like unfortunately broken up but they worked like multiple jobs to fund Hamilton's career, well, Lewis's career Um and then someone might say, well, they should have been using their money for other things, but I guess like, it's, it's only one person's place to say what they spend their money on, and that's the people who earn it, right? Definitely. You do get other races. So there's another um, driver on the grid called Esteban Ocon, who's also come from a not very wealthy background, but has just worked and worked and worked. I guess you get that in a lot of places. There is a bit of corruption in the fact that sometimes the the, the team owners come from wealthy backgrounds, so they retain a particular driver or sometimes in this in um, Aston Martin's case they retain their son in the driving seat because they own the car um, so Lance Stroll who's on the grid who's not the greatest driver but does have a good ra- I think he's not got the, the worst race craft but he's definitely not worthy of that 20th seat his dad owns the team and puts as much or little money into the team as he wants but if it wasn't for his input the entire team would collapse and that will cause, you know, the butterfly effect of unemployment and no one wants to see anything go into submission. But if it wasn't for the, uh, if it wasn't for Lawrence Stroll, who owns Tommy Ilfiger, bit wow. of a fact, and his money he inputs in, like, yeah. the... It's kind of like the sun has to be in there for the for the uh, manufacturer to stay you do, in You tend to get that in the lower, in the lower teams. The big teams like Mercedes and Ferrari make enough money as a entity in itself that they can be a bit more wise and a bit more sort of cutthroat if they put in. Yeah. You know, if their team principal's not delivering, 
they can they can be ousted. Same with the driver. Not not that it's too negative. Well, there, uh, there's obviously a few issues with like it being elitist in a way and struggling to get there. I don't know if that's the most negative thing because there, you know, it's a sport. It has a right to exist in its current format, and there are plenty of other sports that you can play. You know. Unfortunately, that might be the way that that sport's run. But there's a couple of other negatives that it might be worth touching on. Uh, again, I don't know too much about it. But from an outside point of view, other negatives that would include the safety of the sport. Mm. So, again, a lot of sports actually are in this trope where I look at boxing or MMA. Where I do feel that like it's great to have a sport, but sometimes it's worth weighing up there. So, be interested to get your thoughts on both the safety aspect and the fact that formula one is obviously not very good for environmentally obviously working in sustainability i don't know how much you know about that don't maybe maybe it does a lot outside of it but i imagine that just the fact that it is cars racing um for that kind of green impact Mm. first of all the the right the the riders the the drivers know what they're getting into they are fully aware of the safety implications of driving a car 200 miles an hour on a track <laughs> with barriers near your face. <laughs> but Good point. they love the challenge. And the sport actually does quite fantastically in minimising the risk. Back in the day, in sort of the 70s, you get sometimes two races a year die from driving, but that doesn't stop people. It only encourages the sport to invest more into how to make it safe because the trend isn't going to stop. Well, I mean, people have been doing crazy extreme things climbing mountains for years and exactly. they've not they, cared about safety exactly but the, the sport has done fantastically in, in recent years to make it as safe as possible so the car is designed in a way that un, it, if it, it comes under like an extreme force or impact it very easily just like snaps away but cocoons the driver in a in basically an, an imperishable box another thing they've introduced is called the halo you might have seen it on the cars it's the sort of ribbon that goes over the helmet and that's designed to, if a tyre flies off, to to ricochet bits of shrapnel or tyres off the driver. It's meant to protect the head. Was it this year or last year that the uh, <coughs> there was a car that kind of flipped and the tyre... I mean, I'm doing visuals for those who can't see. Uh, <laughs> but the tyre kind of grazed, almost grazed the helmet. And I think there was a suggestion that if that halo hadn't been put in, it could have literally taken So that head was off. Monza 2021 into Turn 1. Yeah, <laughs> he knows it. <laughs> Hamilton comes out of the pit lane with Verstappen coming down the main straight and they both go into the chicane and the rear wheels of both the cars caused Verstappen to flip up into flip up and over Hamilton. So his entire car that weighs several tonnes gets flipped up and reverse, and it spins onto the top of Hamilton's car. And yeah, without the halo, the tyre, which was still spinning basically grazed over the helmet and without the halo it, they touch on it actually in Drive to Survive where they go back to the Mercedes factory to analyse the damage from that incident and in engineers would have said that he could have died so without that without that halo which was a landslide voting they basically put they put forward the halo idea to the drivers and they unanimously decided bar two or three that they wanted the halo to improve the safety provision of the sport so it's doing what it can, but there's always going to be a big risk when you get 20 cars going around at 200 miles an hour. But yeah, the, the, the track's laid out in a way where it's as safe as possible. So you have runoff zones, uh, water barriers, you've got fire safety marshals, you have... Safety cars. Exactly. It does what it can, considering it's probably one of the most, if not the most dangerous sport in the world. Definitely back in the day. Like Safety is only going to be improved. It's absolutely paramount to anything. Yeah, I think you're completely right. And to be honest, we're not children. I, I do think there's always this argument about how how do we stop people from doing things so they don't get hurt, but also be in a free society, in a free country, where you can do what you want as long as mm. you're not hurting other people. I suppose in a way you could hurt other people, but at the same time that person has the autonomy to be put in that um situation so no i i understand that mm. I, I think that it's good to hear that it's got safer yeah and um you touched on the yeah. uh, environmental impact of the oh, sport yes. as well yeah. which is quite often the haters would say is the the main criticism of the sport that it's just wasting petrol well i guess to that argument 
we're in this hybrid era where it uses it's basically electric engines it's near enough it's hydroelectric technology it's hybrid electric not hydroelectric they're not water powered <laughs> but <laughs> that would be amazing the actual carbon footprint of the cars is extremely small extremely small it's the uh, supply chain emissions that are related to carrying all of the equipment around the world it's the air miles that's the real damage to the actual sport and that's the thing that ultimately will never make the sport even though they claim they're going to be net zero at 2030 that just means uh, it's going to be consumption based emissions at the track it won't be production based emissions of flying between circuits do you see what I mean this is a whole nother kettle of fish but that cascades down to government saying that we're going to be net zero but then that's not you know the external carbon emissions that are being brought in they may be net zero at the base but fundamentally there's going to be the negative externalities surrounding that but my counter to this argument is yes i know that they're flying cars vans everything around the world which is hugely carbon intensive it has not a single dent on the overall aviation industry as a whole if you think about how many people are flying around the world for holidays or, had, or other sports or other sports you think about about people flying going to be flying to Qatar like it has like it it doesn't even dent on anything it doesn't even make a dent on the carbon emissions associated with aviation as a whole and then someone might say we don't we don't need f1 but then I don't know maybe we need we don't need to have holidays so you you can go in circles with this but what I'm saying is, I, I'm obviously working sustainability and attempting to make a net zero society. But I, I, I'm just a big, such a big fan of the sport, and I can see that it is heading in the right direction. And this is that where you say enough. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And this is where you have to draw a balance. Like, yes, we need to reduce our carbon footprint, but are we all just like is every person going to stop going away? Are we just going to stop travelling? As we come to a close, though, I have to ask. And I do, I think we could speak about this for another hour, I have to say. There are definitely a few other questions, <laughs> but I think to finish it off, your highlight. What, what's, your, what's the best, what's the moment where you just thought, I love this sport? It probably has to be, I guess, watching it at Silverstone, which we were meant to touch on more in detail, but I guess we haven't as much as we would have liked to. But being there and experiencing a race win and an excitement with an overtake or watching Hamilton about sort of 15 metres in front of you lifting a trophy after winning that is kind of special, actually. But I've had as much fun uh, watching it as Silverstone as I have, watching on telly with an absolutely phenomenal race. So I'll probably allude to the championship-winning race of 2021 or just a fantastic race, maybe at, like... There's too many. It's hard to pin down, like, a fantastic moment apart from just like the overall enjoyment in the sport brilliant good to hear well to be honest we <coughs> still didn't touch on drive to survive silverstone in detail mm. and the formula one game so i think part two needs to be done because one of the reasons i'm sitting here right now is because of that formula one game and we can talk about how important sometimes games are to sport mm. you think of how important fifa is i mean it's always football fifa is key yeah absolutely key so yeah i'm thoroughly keen for a part two as i hope the listeners are but thanks for coming on and sharing your thoughts very spoke very eloquently not that i just did there (laughs) about formula one which is very impressive you must must love the sport i do it's brilliant (laughs) who would have thought (laughs) see you next time bye